Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992. Here from our perch in 2023, I am one of your hosts, Phil Isco. I am your special guest host, Emily St. James, sitting in for your normal host, Emily St. James. Perfect. I, I'm really uh, good at Twin Peaks backward speak. <laughs> I, I really, I just, every day. Yeah, I listen, it. you, you, it's, I, I didn't know you had that secret talent. I, I do. It's why I, it's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> um, so this was one of those episodes that I feel has been looming mm-hmm. for, for, we're, we are recording this, um, almost a year to the day of us releasing our first episode and let's be, let's be clear we normally record so far in advance that honeymoon in vegas episode you just heard we record that last may like i was in new york <laughs> city to see taylor were, swift and we recorded that episode and yep. uh uh but no we're recording this one week in advance so like one we can we can do some current events talk phil who do you think is going to win the super bowl see this is going to prove the Kansas City Chiefs or the San Francisco 49ers? I think the 49ers. Chiefs are probably going to win. I mean, that's the NFL's, the NFL's going to rig it in favor of them because it's a deep state plot. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started. It's amazing <laughs> to me. This conspiracy is amazing. I was watching, funny enough, I was watching rewatching some Alias episodes with my roommate, and we were yeah. like, what if this is like a Project Christmas thing? Like, what if, like, Taylor from birth was, like, groomed to be, it's like, I mean, w- would watch that show. Listen, listen, I, I, th- I firmly believe that she was, like, a wash up 60 year old singer and then like the cia came in and was like we're gonna make you a teenager and like she's like but i what am i gonna do she's like like you're an amazing songwriter we're gonna give you everything else we're the cia and we're just gonna we're gonna put a little chip in your head and we're gonna call you into action someday that's 
it's it's to, in to, uh, to re-elect yeah. uh, an octogenarian president. Exactly, exactly. It's the deep state. There's that episode of the X Files where the cigarette uh, smoking man is there, like, "Who do you want to win the Super Bowl?" And he's like, "I don't care anybody with the Buffalo Bills. I just firmly believe that that is." I gotta tell you, um, past and future guest Joe Reed. I feel for him every time the Buffalo Bills are playing a football game. We came, just to... we, you know, I know I'm not a huge NFL follower, but sure. I'm a follower of like teams, and I like when mm-hmm. teams have like long, long lasting legacies of just mm-hmm. defeat and abject humiliation, sure. like the Toronto Maple Leafs. Let's say yes, uh, yes. and yes. Uh, I we were so close to a Detroit Lions Buffalo Bills Super Bowl, and that would have just done my heart so much good, but. Alas, but we can't have good things. No, We're not we can't. allowed good things. Yeah, it's just not. Um, but what I, what I was saying was that this episode has loomed pretty large. I know that this, you know, it's it's Twin Peaks. It's it's a thing that that a lot of people love, myself included. I know, obviously, you have feelings about Twin mm-hmm. Peaks as well, which we'll get into. Um, and I felt like. You know, you and I had talked. I know that this is an important movie for you, and we're gonna we're gonna expound on that. And it just felt like. Like no guest. Let's just let's yeah. just uh, let's just yeah. do this. Well, before I was gonna be the the special guest host of this podcast, you were you were uh, you you reached out to me and you were like, "I'm doing 1992." And after I was like, "1992," because uh, I like had like I had no associations with any of the films from this year. And you were like, "Well, I'm giving you first crack. What do you want?" And I looked at the list of films and just immediately it was like Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And you were like, "Really?" <laughs> I mean, and, and I, you know, it's funny. I've only watched this film once before this rewatch. Um, and uh, it was, I, I will talk about sort of, you know, the, the, uh, the rewatch, but Twin Peaks as a thing, mm-hmm. which is sort of where I want to start us talking about this is such a strange sort of property i guess is the best way to put it in the sense that there's so much projection onto it now admittedly it's 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 begging for that because it's kind of weirdly ambiguous and dreamlike and all that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff but it also starts from a place of a murder mystery yeah which i think is why it kind of locked into a lot of people yeah and then it became a thing that was just completely unlike anything you know, it, it sort of broke outside that genre and people got frustrated with it. Yeah. And I'm sort of curious uh, as to where, first of all, when did Twin Peaks come into your life? Like, do you remember watching this? Did you watch the show first? Did you watch this movie first? I definitely remember. Yeah, I definitely watched the show first. There was for a long time, I was kind of a Twin Peaks anti fan. Like, I, Interesting. I, I liked okay. it. Like, I, was, I wasn't going to lie and say I didn't like it, but like the just like, Part of it was I was in a lot of film circles. And when you're talking with film people, Twin Peaks is one of the TV shows they like Absolutely. because it's David Lynch. And sure. they'll be like, Lynch, Lynch's genius transcends the limitations of television. And you're like, fuck you. Um, I had I had like watched a little bit of it, but like I was sneaking it. This is a lot of the stuff, you know, that we talk about here. I was not allowed to watch. Twin Peaks was the thing I like snuck in little bits of like okay. pieces here and there because I was so fascinated by it. I think like I watched on VHS. Uh, no, like on, or... when it was airing, like okay. when it was on TV. I think I watched some of the pilot that way, you know, because that pilot was like huge. It was like hugely sure. rated. And I actually th- thinking about the murder mystery of it all. That seems to be the way you can get people to watch just about anything. 
Yep. Like the White yep. Lotus had barely a murder mystery, but people tuned yep. in because they were like, there's a dead body. Got to find out what happened. And it's yep. just like, I'm so fascinated by that. Uh, and what kinds of murders can we work into everything? Uh, well, I, I, I agree with you. And I'll also just say just to sort of piggyback on that. And they're always disappointed yeah. <laughs> by the revelation. They're never happy with why the person died. Yeah. What I think is interesting about Twin Peaks is it kind of invents this whole genre of television, which I think the X-Files and Lost go on to make like a mainstream thing, which is the mystery box where mysteries are inside mysteries are inside mysteries. But the thing about that I think is fascinating about Twin Peaks is it has a hard and fast answer to its central mystery. The answer makes sense. And people utterly like people are like, it's not a thing wow. where they're disappointed by that answer. It's a thing where they're so horrified by it. They keep being like, yeah, but there's more to it, right? And Twin Peaks is like, no, this is the answer. Laura Palmer was killed by her father who's been raping her. And you're like, no, I don't actually want to hear that. What's what's the thing that's going on? And like, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's this utterly unique thing in the world of mystery box storytelling. And I think it's, uh, I think it's brilliant. Uh, and I think it has never quite been approached. Um, so my journey with Twin Peaks was I, I snuck it as a kid. I think I watched all of it in college, like when it first came out on DVD. Uh, then I set it aside for a long time. Then I became an anti-fan. Uh, and then in the build-up to the Showtime series, I rewatched all of it. Uh, and I was like, yeah, no, this 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 fucking rules. It's probably my favorite show. It is a, it is a it is a it's weird because I don't want like I, I think when people say comfort like comfort food what they mean is a thing they can revisit over and over and over again and we'll talk about this a little bit in a bit but i almost never rewatch stuff um i i find rewatching things very boring um what i like to do is like in my brain kind of live in that space and twin peaks is a space i go to a lot i find it an immensely comforting place uh even though it's like terrible and horrifying you know it, it's it's interesting because, I mean, first of all, I, I kind of, I want to rewind just a second to what you were saying about the the Leland reveal, right, of, mm -hmm. of uh, him being the murderer. You know, obviously, there's been lots of interviews, interviews with David Lynch. We, we, we're not going to go down a rabbit hole necessarily on all the various sort of conspiracy theories and what have you. But what I am sort of curious about is, it does feel as though the goal was never to reveal that. Yeah. Right. Um, David Lynch, notoriously a man who's not interested in giving answers, is not interested in sort of pat bows on the ends of his things, wants to wants to elicit a feeling, wants to elicit sort of an emotion. Um, so the idea to me that that would never be revealed and that it would just be sort of subtextual. I think is kind of fascinating in its own right as well. Right. Yeah. Like I, 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 it's not to take anything away from the power of the reveal, Yeah, but I do think that, and that's something that I kind of want to talk with you as we get deeper into this movie today about um, the power of not revealing things and how this movie kind of puts it all on front street. So we can, we'll talk about that. Um, just to give a sort of a little bit on me in terms of how Twin Peaks came into my life. Um, Past and Future Guest and one of my best friends, Jan Katask, back in Toronto. Um, this was a show that he had the VHS box set of the first two seasons of. Um, I had never seen it before. Um, and we had sort of like a, a Twin Peaks watch parties that we would do and we would watch episodes of it. Uh, and, and that was my exposure to the show. 
Um, Lynch was never my guy for a long time. Um, and I went to film school and past and future guest, uh, Simon Ennis, who's a very good friend of mine, who's a writer and filmmaker in his own right. I remember he's a big Lynch fan. And I remember having a conversation with him where he's like, you have to stop trying to hold on to plot and yeah. trying to logic out his shit. Cause that's what is the stumbling block for you. And once I realized, and I hate the whole, like, it's a vibe. Once you realize it's a vibe the whole thing becomes so much more interesting. Yeah. I, my gateway to Lynch um, was weirdly enough. Um, Lynch is one of my favorite filmmakers, but I don't love everything he's made. He's made some real crap, but like uh, <laughs> I, uh, my gateway to him was obviously I watched some of Twin Peaks when I was like 10 sure. uh, and uh, uh, was uh, the straight story, which I really loved. Great movie. And there's nothing like any of his yeah. other movies in a weird way. And then like I watched Mulholland Drive and that like kind of kicked off. I think I think that's his best. Like I think objectively that's his best film. This is for me his best film, but I think Mulholland sure. Drive is like if you're just gonna show a person one David Lynch film and be like, This is his deal, that's yeah. the one I think is like I don't want to say it's approachable because it's really not, but it's like it gives you a sense it gives you a sense of who he is in a way that is like comprehensible as opposed to something like inland empire which i also really like but like is just like in is just incomprehensible to so many people yeah i mean i i think Mulholland is my favorite as well um but you know i really love wild at heart i i mean i i really love a lot i mean i love most of his films i you know i think the thing about Mulholland too is not that this is an episode about Mulholland, but because it was a pilot, it has that sort of entry pointness to yeah. it um, that allows you sort of access to it. And then it just sort of becomes a, a, a wackadoo lynching thing. But, you know, if we were to ever do an episode on Mulholland Drive, which we never would, because yeah. this podcast will never cover the 2000s, never change uh, is uh, that we would uh, probably have to seek out the pilot version, which is available. And I've oh, heard it's really? very fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. Um, so let me give a little bit of context on Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me for our listeners. Uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me in the folksy town of Deerfield, Washington, FBI agent Desmond, uh, played by Chris Isaac, inexplicably disappears while hunting for the man uh, who murdered a teen girl. The killer is never apprehended. And after experiencing dark visions and supernatural encounters, agent Dale Cooper, played by Kyle McLaughlin, chillingly predicts that the culprit will claim another life. Meanwhile, in the cozy town of Twin Peaks, he Mystic beauty, Laura Palmer, played by Shirley, hangs with low life and seems destined for a grisly fate. Sure, that's that is a version. That, of definitely, this. that is definitely yeah. the plot of this film. Yeah, uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me premiered at the Cannes Film Festival on May sixteenth, nineteen ninety two, and it opened in theaters in North America on August twenty eighth, nineteen ninety two. Against Honeymoon in Vegas, Unforgiven, Single White Female, Death Becomes Her, and of course, The Mighty Ducks. It would go on to make $4.2 million on a $10 million budget. It has 63% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 78% from audiences. Um, I want to talk for a second here. Emily, and that, I, I want to be clear that 63% yeah. is a massive improvement and involves a lot of like rediscovery of the film in the last, I want to say, 10 yes. years. This well, this was going to be out, my question to you. Yeah. People fucking hated it. Hated it. And I'm I, I I'm curious. This is a sort of a prime example of something. And as a as a as a former critic, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. Right? Yeah. This is a movie that comes out with unreasonable expectations attached to it. Right? The idea that this is going to somehow uh, resolve 
a whole lot of dangling threads at the end of season two of Twin Peaks. This idea that um, I honestly think people thought this was going to be in, forgive me, but like the Sex and the City movie to the Twin Peaks television. Sure, sure, sure. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that it was just going to be a bigger, more expensive movie version of it. Yeah. If you go back and read a lot of the reviews, they're like, where's the humor? Where's the, you know, where are these fun characters? And they, uh, yeah. Lynch shot a lot of scenes with those characters. And you can watch them now. There's they're on the DVD. They're they're on the internet. They're on. They're probably just on YouTube. But yeah, um, the missing pieces. The missing yeah. pieces. And it's like an hour yeah. and a half of shit he shot for this movie that didn't fit yeah. in. And one thing is like uh, back in the day, people were not as tuned into development deals and stuff like that. But right. uh, this company that funded this film picked up a trilogy and was like. Yes. So I think that Lynch very much uh, just Lynch. He'd fallen out with Mark Frost, the co-creator of Twin Peaks. So I think kept twin peaks a little bit more uh on the line of like a thing that people could just like dig into now frost was also involved in the return which is like a wild esoteric piece of television but uh but yeah at this point lynch and frost are not really hanging out you know uh so this is just pure lynch um and uh you know of course it was originally supposed to have a lot more kyle mclaughlin in it he dropped out for a while and almost didn't get made he came back in and was like i'll take a small part to get this made uh did five days but you know lynch's plan was always i'm just going to show you the last week in the life of laura palmer and then hint at this larger thing that's going on um but no i'm just gonna i'm gonna show you the last week i'm gonna show you the one thing we answered in the tv series and when i'm just gonna show it to you in excruciating detail um yeah it's you know, you mentioned the the comic Lachlan of it all, and it is very interesting just in doing the research on this, just reading about how um, upset these actors were by the end of the series. Um, they, had, I mean, comic Lachlan in particular felt abandoned because Lynch and Frost were not really involved in season two of the show. Right. You know, yeah. notoriously, the show um, goes into some pretty, you know, wacky places I They're do, forced to answer the question of who killed Laura Palmer and all that. Yeah, I do. You know, the first, I think the first eight episodes of season two, which Lynch and Frost were quite involved with and which culminate in the reveal of who killed Laura Palmer, I think are are probably honestly the most consistent and best the show was. But the ratings were falling off because people wanted the answer because this is like, I don't want to say it was a totally new form of storytelling. Like it was building yeah. off some things like Wise Guy and so on, but it was really unprecedented to not reveal the killer for that long now of course we would like kind of go along with it but um uh and i i think i genuinely think abc was right to make them reveal the killer because i think that gives the show it could have given the show a lot of juice going forward the episode after the reveal of leland is really strong uh, and then it kind of peters out because they go off and do other stuff because it's a different showrunner being like, what does twin, what's a twin peaksy kind of thing? And yes. it's like, the well, thing, then you get the window Merle stuff. And yeah. Dying in chess pieces. And the <laughs> thing about like twin peaks is like, it has to be like, have that menace and it kind of, the menace kind of seeped out of it. Um, although Lynch comes back for the two part series finale, which is uh, phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, you can kind of skip from, I think season two, episode nine to the finale and not really miss anything. I of course have watched all of it because that's me, but uh, I totally get why people skip over it and then just go on to firewalk with me in the return. It is, 
yeah, I, I get why those actors felt abandoned. Um, Laura Flynn Boyle has just never wanted to do Twin Peaks again because she felt like the the new showrunner came in and was like exploitative of her uh, status as a very attractive young woman. Uh, uh, and uh, it's been, uh, yeah, it, it's just... Uh, well, it's it's yeah. quite a journey, this... I mean, to sort of rewind back to what, what I was saying up top, this show, this property, this thing has kind of evolved into a very Lynchian thing, right? Which is something that you can't totally wrap your arms around, something that is decidedly not satisfying, quote unquote, in the typical sort of conventional way that a lot of movies and television shows are. And I think that that challenging component to it I think pisses people off. I mean, quite frankly. Yeah, it's you know uh, the thing. I mean, the thing about Twin Peaks is it has this reputation as being horribly esoteric and hard to understand. And to some extent, that's true. I don't want to pretend that like the Red Room stuff isn't a little bit weird and mystifying. But like again, the answer to its mystery is very clear and is spelled out multiple times, and people just kind of reject it. There's a great video out by the the video essayist uh, Princess Weeks, which is about depictions of domestic abuse on television basically on on south park sort of filtering it through the johnny depp amber heard trial uh which we're not going to get into here because that's going to take us on a tangent but uh the but she's basically talking about how uh, in pop culture when we treat subjects of domestic abuse which is not what's happening in twin peaks fire walk with me but it's related it's in the same neighborhood it's it's there it's it's very much like when we talk about that, television and film always kind of give the audience an out, and it has created a terrible expectation of what a real abuse victim looks like. I'm putting air quotes around real abuse victim. Like you'll watch an episode of SVU. She has a clip from an episode of SVU that is like the woman who's been abused. Uh, Mariska Hargitay has put her husband in prison, and this woman's like, but I loved him. You don't understand. And like that's that's like – Obviously, situations like that exist. I'm not going to pretend that, like, there aren't abuse victims who love their abusers, and are, in fact, most of them do in domestic abuse situations. But it is, you know, SVU, like, highlights that love to the uh, detriment of everything else. And, like, SVU's good storytelling. Like, that's a fun show to watch. Like, fun is a weird word to use for SVU, but you know what I mean. It's compelling. Yeah. But, like, these narratives that keep resurfacing are so that we get to the end of a story about abuse and we're like okay great everything's fine Twin Peaks doesn't give you that out and people hate it yeah well it's I mean that's what I it's kind of amazing to me you know I remember a lot of people feeling like the end of season two Uh which conceivably felt like for perhaps the end of the show forever was a bit of a fuck you in the sense that, and again, we're going to talk spoilers here, but like, you know, Bob has taken over Cooper, uh, you know, the, the, our hero has become taken over by evil and it's like a fuck you from Lynch to ABC. Yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily the case since to your point, they had future stuff they wanted to do. They knew that they were going to do these movies afterwards. So I don't think it was nearly as much of a fuck you as you think. Yeah, but then you and, think of the end of the return. Yeah. And, and it kind of does feel like him just being like, we're never going to satisfy you <laughs> intentionally. I, I think that the season two ending is an amazing cliffhanger. And if they I had gone to make a season three or if they had gotten to make the sequel films, like they... I mean, the return does resolve that cliffhanger. The absolutely. return does just absolutely say, here's the answer to that cliffhanger, and here's some other stuff. 
Kyle McLaughlin is mostly going to play like a salesman in Las Vegas, and he's kind of an idiot. But he's got a loving wife played by Naomi Watts. How do you feel about that? And I'm like, brilliant. And like, I remember. (laughs) And everyone else is like, where is Cooper? (laughs) I was working as a TV critic at that time. And it was the Mm. summer of 2017, which is this intensely destabilizing time. If you are at all left leaning uh, in the United States of America. Uh, And I remember this. I remember feeling like this is the only show that makes sense to me right now. And I was talking. I was talking to people, uh, other critics, and they were just like furious at it. And now they'd all say they love it because I do think by the time it resolved, they sort of saw what was happening, where it was all going and all of that. But at the time, they were just like, why is this Dougie guy around? I'm like, no, you you did. Like, doesn't this just the thing about Twin Peaks is I can't entirely explain why it makes perfect sense to me, because like it just like it just feels like how I see the world. Like if, if you read my 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 stuff it hasn't you would not expect twin peaks to be an influence on it but it is like it's it's very much like the world just to me feels like a cloak of uh banality over like just like a kind of dark creeping menace and like you know um yeah well that you know it's i i want to unpack that for a second because i do feel like watching this the other day i found myself just no one does what lynch does there are people that try we've had many a lynchian thing and yet there is something and you kind of just crystallized it of this sort of um harmonious world that sort of exists above something very dark and very menacing Uh, you know it's the dreams on top of the nightmares that he's able to conjure moods and visions that are so upsetting but counterbalance it with a little bit of this kind of like odd and i hate the word quirky but like there's this humor to the to what he does that no one else does now this film in particular i don't know that it strikes the same balance as it usually does this is a very menacing movie this movie does not have a lot of levity in it um which is i think part of what i think people pushed back against when it first came out um it is it's it's a rough ride. It's a hard watch. I if you, found it if you look at like, I mean, if you look at Blue Velvet, which is kind of the first movie where you'd be like, that is a David Lynch movie. Obviously, Eraserhead sure. is very Lynchian, but like sure. that was a small, not like at the time that was a cult thing. Blue Velvet is like a big mainstream thing that sure. is nonetheless super weird. And the thing that's interesting about Blue Velvet is the levity is mixed up with the horror. The funniest character yeah. in that movie is Dennis Hopper, and you're, but he's also the scariest character in that sure, movie. Sure. Um, I do think what's interesting about Lynch is that he can like use multiple... He has multiple modes he can play in to offset the horror. Yeah. Uh, I think Mulholland Drive is a great love story. like, And yeah. that, you know kind of offset but certainly like his when you think about lynch i think what we what we mean when we say lynchian has shifted in the last 15 years probably since the release of mulholland drive um it it, it has shifted from it used to mean like quirky weird stuff and now it means nightmarish and like i think that's been an interesting shift in the filmmaker i most often compare him to is um hayao miyazaki um Because I think they both are very interested in what I think they both understand about dreams is that when you're in a dream, it feels like somebody somewhere knows the rules. You don't. 
But you, there's somebody somewhere, if you could just find them and you could be like, excuse me, tell me what's going on. They'd be like, well, here you go. This and this and this and this and this. And what's important about both Lynch and Miyazaki is they never once like have that person sit down and explain the rules. Um, and both of them, you know, there's a four and a half hour video on YouTube called Twin Peaks Explained, which by and large, like explains Twin Peaks. It gives sure, you like an sure. explanation for everything that makes huh? sense and involves like extra dimensional beings and shit. And you're like, OK, sure. But like, OK, um, and Miyazaki's work is so often steeped in like uh, images from Japanese myth and legend. So like if you're really into that, you can like kind of figure out what's going on. But what's important is they never explain it. Sure. But there's also in your mind this sense of some underlying rule of what's mm-hmm. going on, which I think a lot of people who try to do that form of storytelling, who try to do the Ghibli thing, who try to do the um, Lynch thing, they just don't get that. They're like, it's weird stuff. It's dream stuff. That's that's the thing. I, I, I feel like, you know, when someone says that a movie or a TV show is Lynchian, you're like, oh, so it's quote unquote weird. Yeah. Like that, that, and that to me is just so first of all, obviously it's reductive, but it also is just completely missing the point. And I, I kind of so um, just a, a couple sort of snippets of the way this film was received back in 92. Notoriously Tarantino, of all people said, after I saw Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, a can David Lynch had disappeared so far, far up his own ass. I have no desire to see another David Lynch movie until I hear something different. And, you know, I loved him. I loved him. Sure. Uh, you've got uh, Janet Maslin from The New York Times saying Mr. Lynch's taste for brain-dead grotesque has lost its novelty. Uh, Variety said Laura Palmer, after all the talk, is not a very interesting or compelling character and long before the climax has become a tiresome teenager which is insane to me of all the takes. That's the one that I'm just like, I I don't anyway. Um, But since then, the movie has, has had a resurgence. It's had a revival, if you will, or, or sort of a, a reinterpretation. In 2013, The Village Voice wrote, in its own singular way, Fire Walk With Me is David Lynch's masterpiece. Blue Velvet devised a way of, uh, devised a kind of distorted TV soap, dug up a small town's sordid secrets, suggesting that all seemingly good things had a dark side, but Fire Walk With Me taps into something considerably more terrifying. Not only the evil buried somewhere in the quintessential middle-class family, but the evil buried somewhere in all of us and our capacity for it um it's also interesting so uh uh, lindsey hallam the author of a book about the movie also said attributes the negative response to uh due to the following that lynch did not let the audience off the hook we were taken so far into laura's experience without any respite and none of the humor associated with the series lynch in the in sort of recent uh, has talked about, I feel bad for Firewalk with me, that it did no business and that a lot of people hate the film, but I really liked the film, but it had a lot of baggage with it. It's as uh, free and experimental as it could be within the dictates uh, it had to follow. Um, I, I also think that like, I just feel as though filmmakers have kind of looked at this film through a different prism over the last, and maybe it is what you're saying, the post Mulholland Drive prism of everyone just sort of be. Because I agree with you. Back in 2001, Mulholland Drive comes out, he wins Best Director, shares it with the Coens for Man Who Wasn't There, but he wins uh, Best Director at Cannes. Um, that movie hits a vein. He gets a Best Director nomination for it. It feels like that movie kind of everyone was like, it all kind of clicked for people in a way. And it's kind of a, a weird kind of fork in the road for it. And he's made one movie since. He's made one movie in The Return. You know, he's made yeah. Twin Peaks The Return. It's like, uh, right as he clicks, yeah. the kind of movie he makes stops. It's getting, becomes incredibly hard to get financed. Like, yeah. 
Inland Empire uh, is pushing against the constraints of its budget at all times. And the return is a very large, but has a very large budget, but he had to, you know, return to the world of this show and he had to fight for it. Um, And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the interesting thing about his period in the nineties is he's doing a lot of his best work. He's doing a lot of movies people love now, but uh, especially Firewalk with me, and uh, the movies that immediately... Lost Highway comes between after Lost Highway's right yeah. after this, Lost, and, and then like, um, yeah, so Lost Highway ninety seven, which is five years later, Straight Story ninety nine. Yeah, uh, and then, then it really Mahal does it does feel like Lost Highway was a lot of people were like, who is this guy now? And then Straight yeah, Story people hated that at the time. Yeah. Uh, Straight Story people are like, oh, he's just doing a normal thing again. Good yeah. for him. And that feels it does feel like that was a turning point for people because it was the first time Roger Ebert liked him. Roger Ebert's Correct. never liked him uh, yep. and uh, until that point. And Straight Story was like people realizing he was like a good filmmaker and not just like a, a guy who was creating memes, you know, which is what we'd call it now. Um, sure. And Mulholland Drive then is like him go- diving back into his style, but a lot of people are better able to appreciate it. So I think that Straight Story, Mulholland Drive, like two for really pushed him over the top and then he just stopped making movies. So. And then he stopped making movies. You know, I do think it's, you know... It's so funny. So Story Story uh, makes a little over $6 million on a $10 million budget, so mm-hmm. doesn't make its money back. Yeah. Mulholland Drive, for all of its love, makes $20 million on a $15 million budget. It's sure. not as though his movies hit in that way, at least theatrically. Like, they have long tails. I, yeah. I'm sure that, like, he sells a million DVDs, but you know what I mean? Like, I think the thing about Mulholland Drive is it's his first very lynchy movie in the DVD era, and that movie, yes. I, I hear, sold a lot of units because people wanted to watch it over and over and over again. Yeah. That's, um, you know, that's the era of movies like this bombing in theaters. Um, a, a, An example would be Donnie Darko, which is, you know, aspiring sure. to that sort of lynchy thing um uh, but you know bombs in theaters and then it comes out on dvd and is a huge success and people are like yes i just need to like i need to plumb all the secrets and mulholland drive uh you you can like you can form an explanation of what happens in that movie but it's so incidental to the pleasures of it but that's what dvd was for at the time yeah no 100 percent. i you know you have to wonder whether or not if this film comes out a little later, Mm -hmm. does it hit in a different way? Like it it does feel like, you know, we've obviously, we've been talking 92 for, you know, a while now. And this movie does feel a little bit like it doesn't fit in this year, if that makes sense. Like it doesn't feel as though people's appetite for films like this totally meshes i i don't know maybe i'm being inarticulate but i you know don't what I'm saying? i don't think there's ever been an appetite for a film like this and to be clear this is <laughs> fair, fair to be clear when i say i love this film this film if i if somebody gave me a sight and sound list which they never have it would be it would be in there it's one of my top 10 movies oh, ever wow, okay, like okay. It, it is for me an important touchstone i've seen it three times uh and la- yesterday I was I watched this yesterday. I was putting off watching it. I did not want to revisit it. I was uninterested in rewatching it. I was like, I I I have I have visceral sense memory of this film. I could probably sure. discuss it from that. Sure. But I was like, I should rewatch it. And I was like, Do you want to watch it with me to Libby? And she was like, Oh fuck no. Uh, so <laughs> 
you know, I rewatched <laughs> it last night, but the whole time I was like looking at my computer, I was doing other things because I was like, I just cannot be in the headspace of this film. I want to engage with it entirely. And like, uh, but it's it still really, it still really got to me. Like it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, but to me, it's, it's singular. It's, it's, it's one of the few films that captures, I say, I find it comforting because mm-hmm. it captures what reality is for me. And okay. I think it, you know, I watched this movie. I, I want to live in Twin Peaks. Let's just the stay there up front, the town, but okay. also like uh, the vibe, you know, mm-hmm. I want to live in a place where it feels like everyone is sort of tapped into like this madness. And um, it, it, it oh, is, God. you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to become, you know, a murder victim, but I would not mind like having weird dreams where I go to a, like a red room and like, you know, uh, when David Bowie passes away, David Lynch replaces him with an enormous teapot, you know, like that's the kind of vibe. Yeah, I'm sure, sure. Sure. I, so, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to make of that per se. We're gonna, we're just, gonna get into it. We're gonna get there, but I'll, 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 I do think that, you know, it's interesting when you say that. Like, I want to live in in Twin Peaks, and mm-hmm. and I feel as though the perception of the town really kind of evolves and changes and shifts over the course of of the life of this series. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that. It always has that sense of menace, not to suggest that it doesn't, but it does feel like it's a little quirkier and funnier and a little more kind of ABC. And then it's very much not. And then it, and then the show ends and then you have this prequel thing that essentially sort of unpacks and shines a light on, or at least sort of shows you all the things that uh, it talked about in the series. Mm -hmm. And then you have the return, which is essentially sort of a way of saving Coop a little bit, yeah. right? Which is we we find out what happened to him. He's been living in some liminal space in a box for a long I mean, time. Who hasn't? <laughs> who hasn't? Uh, then he's Dougie for a while. Then he's Coop again. And then he finds Laura. And then we realize <laughs> that he's trapped anyway. Yeah. And that he will always be in search of saving Laura Palmer. That is his quest for all of eternity, which is kind of lovely in its own way also kind of terrifying like this, terrifying. The, the thing the the point of this movie is that laura's death is is what she needs she needs to be dead and our need for answers our need to like go back and undo this tragedy to a certain degree is keeping her trapped in this cycle that is terrible and will always harm her and like one of the things i find fascinating about these tv reboots that we're kind of coming out of, but like we're all the rage for like five years is all of them have to kind of grapple with the fact that if you want to continue this story, like a sequels are the new version of this. If you want to continue the story, you have to take characters who reached some sort of ending happy or not. And then be like, actually, I'm going to keep torturing you. How do you feel about that? Is that fun for you? Probably not. Twin Peaks is the one property, both in Firewalk with me and the return, sure. that is like, I'm gonna engage with this question. And the audience is like, I don't actually want to think about this. But like, uh, yeah, I do think the interesting thing about thing about Twin Peaks, the original series, is it's engaged in it, it, the vernacular it exists within is the primetime soaps of the 80s. And it's engaged with that material. 
and the return exists within the vernacular of prestige TV of the 2010s. You know, it is very much a lot of those archetypes are there. They're all mixed around, so you don't necessarily recognize them. But like, it is not that difficult to read um, the the story about Dougie as like sort of a riff on Breaking Bad. You don't have to work that hard to get there. Um, and uh, <laughs> the thing about Fire Walk with Me is like it is not really like anything else. It is very much itself. And uh, that is, uh, you know, I I, mean, it's it it is a movie that conceivably you could watch having never seen an episode. Absolutely. Which, I mean, would be pretty harrowing, but still like, you know, it's it's interesting as we were talking about sort of, you know, the the, the reboot and the revivals and what have you. It it made me think about like in in particular with this series lynch and like fate and destiny Mm -hmm. and how surprisingly kind of um i don't want to say binary but it does you do get the sense that for him it's like this is cooper and laura's fate like this is they are locked into this which is interesting for a guy whose movies seem so ambiguous it is kind of very like on rails in that way yeah and that that idea recurs in his work. This idea that like there is this tragedy that you cannot escape. Um, and the idea of duality of two characters who are in kind of a locked dyad who have to experience that tragedy yeah. over and over. Um, I think the end of Blue Velvet is like the end of Blue Velvet is like kind of gives you a release of like, well, this has yeah. been figured out, but yep. also is very much like it doesn't it doesn't matter. You know, there's all this mm-hmm. this evil that still lurks. But also, look at this beautiful fucking bird. The last shot of Blue Velvet is you look out the window and there's the fakest looking bird ever. But like everyone's like, "What a beautiful bird!" And I think that's yeah. that's that's the Lynch thing is like, you can lie to yourself about anything, and we do all the time. Yeah. I think also part of it is a little bit um, Lynch as an actual person. He's sure. interviewed relatively frequently. You know, all things considered, he has his his weather channel and all of that. I feel like I know nothing about this man. You know, like he gets interviewed oh, sure. all the time. Yeah. Oh, so I don't I don't know him as a person. I mean, more in in, no, in the sure. vibe he gives off. He gives off this aw shucks, sweet kind of dad vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, we'll go on the Tonight Show with a head made of cheese that's been eaten by ants. You know yeah. what I mean? And you're just like, okay, like he's. Obviously, he contains multitudes, but I do think that, for instance, have you seen some of the clips of like him directing um, uh, on Mulholland? Sure. The way he kind of his directions are just very sort of um, they're very sweet and very kind of charming, and he's yeah. kind of like right and and yet he makes these very sort of challenging, horrific things. Like I was reading, there's this quote for him talking about uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me. He said, I couldn't get myself to leave the world of Twin Peaks. I was in love with the character of Laura Palmer and her contradictions, radiant on the surface, but dying inside. I wanted to see her live, move and talk. I was in love with that world and I hadn't finished with it. But making the movie wasn't just to hold on to it. It seemed like there was more stuff that could be done. I wasn't finished with the material yet. And then even Cheryl Lee talks, she also echoes this and says, you know, I never got to be Laura alive just in flashbacks. So it was nice to come full circle with the character. But it speaks sort of to what you're talking about, Emily, of this like um, the the duality and the push and pull. That seems to be what he thrives on as a as an artist. Yeah, yeah. And like, um, 
I actually, last night, one of the things I did as I was watching this and half watching it while looking at my mm-hmm. computer is I researched mm-hmm. the entire run of Desperate Housewives because... Uh, sure, as one does. Cheryl Lee was the original Mary Alice on that show. Oh, really? Yeah, and like the the <laughs> or version of the pilot that has her in it is on... Some of it's on YouTube, so I went and looked at that up. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, th- that is what Lynch has become in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Is like sure, Desperate Housewives sure. is a very lynchy show, and that it's not particularly weird, but it's like yeah. kind of quirky and oddball, and we're looking at suburbia through a different lens. And I'm not besmirching that show; it's, it's a good show that had a, a long, successful run. But it, uh, it, you know, it's it's very much like the thing about Lynch is uh, he's he's uh, he's very into transcendental meditation, and it feels like a lot of the images he comes up with are like things that you come up with when you are meditating and you have some dark darkness in your story that you haven't totally mined uh it it feels like that's kind of where he goes and a lot not a lot of other uh filmmakers uh will will enter that uh zone so but i think that's i think that's what i think that's what people miss and what i think is interesting about Again, I think X-Files and Lost took what this show was doing and ran with it. But what they both had was there's a guy somewhere who does know the answers and we just have to find him. We're going to chase him. We're going to ask him. And then you find him and he's Michael Emerson. He's like, Jack, if you go into this cave, you'll find seven numbers written on a wall. Each of those numbers corresponds to an apple. Eat, eat the right apple and you will find the answer. Eat the wrong sure. apple and you will die. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's a great show. I've, yeah. I've, I've written a book about it. But like it is, you know, taking this and distilling it to a thing that, you know, uh, uh, more people can sort of get to. Uh, and what I think is fascinating about Firewalk with me is it's it is the version Lynch version of giving you the answers. And it's it's viscerally upsetting. <laughs> Well, that you know, it's uh, two things. The first is I agree with you 100% that shows like Lost took this version of uh-huh. Twin Peaks and then shows like Northern Exposure and Picket Fences took the quirky small town right. component and ran with that. And, and fascinatingly, Northern Exposure and Twin Peaks are filming at the same time, uh, came together like they both debuted in early 1990, like they were mm-hmm. – something in the water made everybody be like i gotta see what things are like in the pacific northwest Mm -hmm. i bet they're quirky uh and uh i love (laughs) i i i love northern exposure um but it is another it's another show that is sort of like uninterested in menace and i think that's fine like like the weird thing is like i i want to live in twin peaks but i want to have a vacation home in sicily so (laughs) like but I, I, I want to uh, unpack what you just said about um, uh, sort of giving the answers, quote unquote, right? Which is what Firewalk With Me is yeah. in its own way. Um, and that was the the sort of the tension I had. I mean, there was a lot of tension in the last half hour of this movie because it's fucking harrowing and, and awful. But I did find myself watching it being like, I don't know that I needed this to be literal. I don't know that I needed right. to actually physically see these things, not just because they were awful, but also because it removes so much mystery from the show, um, which which I think is also why it was kind of rejected at the time, too, by fans. Right. Mm-hmm. It's It's this idea of you think you want this. You don't really want this. You right. think you want these answers. You don't really want these answers. 
and that kind of tension, I wasn't, I'm still not really sure how I feel about it, quite honestly. Just in a sense as a, as a storyteller, um, I think that people want to have mysteries answered. Sure. But the thing where someone sits down and tells you what happened is yep. A, hard to write. B, even when you write it great, unsatisfying. Because yep. the second the mystery is answered, the tension disappears from it. Again, uh, I, I wrote a book about loss, so I've been thinking about it a lot lately. The way that sure. show handles answering its mysteries is it's details you might not notice unless you're watching the show deeply, very closely. And like the number of things that show didn't answer is actually very small, but it does not have that reputation because nobody sat down and told you everything. Right. And that does seem to be what people want and need in some respects. Uh, and what I find fascinating about Twin Peaks is that it gives you answers, but maintains that tension because the answers are so horrible that you keep being like, well, it's got to be another thing, right? Yeah. And this movie is like, no, it's not another thing. And you're like, it's got to be another thing. And like 15 minutes later, it's like, no, it's not another thing. And you're like, I don't actually need to see Lou and Palmer rape his daughter. It's like, you're going to watch. You're going to have a great time. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, it is that. You're, you're kind of watching this film being like, it's daring you yeah. to watch these things. It's, it's, it's forcing you to watch them, which... I mean, it's a choice, and I and I do. It does beg the question to some degree as to like what the second and third installments of this trilogy would have been. Yeah, it sounds like they would have been a little bit more following up on the end of the show. Yeah, and I think that that you know is what people expected. I do imagine if they had done an immediate follow up, and yeah. then had done Firewalk with me, and then had done a thing that kind of ties it all together, it would have been received better. Again, I do think they probably needed to come out in like 1997. Yeah, like uh, that yeah. probably would have been better received. But uh, I, I mean, I, I also think it's incredibly gutsy to have the money to make a movie based on a TV show that people did love and yeah. f did have feelings about, regardless of how those feelings ended up uh, yeah. uh, coming out and do this thing that is like intentionally un intentionally uncomfortable. There's this. There, so there's this, there's this book called the body keeps the score uh okay. written by Bessel Vanderkolk. I'm going to I'm just going to I'm just going to do a quick sidebar here. I interviewed him once. He was terrible. He was an awful human being. He was very mean okay. to me. That's that's the Emily Vanderwerf story on Bessel Vanderkolk. I I was Vanderwerf at the time, so that's why I slipped up. Emily St. James. God damn it. God damn, damn it. it. Yeah. Uh the, the yeah. so the opening paragraph of that book is listing all of these traumatic things that people experience and it says 25% of girls in the United States, women in the United States, report having been sexually assaulted before the age of 18. 20% of men report having been sexually assaulted before the age of 18. This is this is where Vanderkolk goes, so I'm summarizing. Most of that happens yeah. in the home. This is a thing that is happening in our culture that we don't talk about ever. Yeah. And Firewalk With Me talks about it because we don't, we don't talk about it because we don't want to look at it. We don't, it's a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's a horrific thing, but also like yeah. the basis of like human society is the nuclear family unit in some capacity, breeding pairs who have kids. 
And the second we start looking at how often that's horrific, we're like, well, is society broken? And like, the, you know, we just don't want to yeah. go there, you know? It, well, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's very, not, I mean, it's very zone of interest too, right? It's yeah. like, we don't want to look at these horrible things that are happening all around the world. We don't want to look at the horrible things that are happening in our own homes. Yes, exactly. It's, you know, you think about these statistics and you like just, they stagger your brain. You're just yeah. like, how can this be possible? And you like to think that we have a little bit more knowledge of where we are, you know, what's useful, what's good child rearing, et cetera. But um, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful podcast by the, the, the great Jamie Loftus called Lolita Pod, where she dug up stuff from like as recently as the 70s that was basically like, yeah, sometimes fathers have sex with their daughters. And it's like, what? It's the, just a thing that just... And like we live in a culture that I think is getting better about understanding these things and about the weight sure. of sexual assault and about the weight of rape, particularly in the lives of women, but also in the lives of men. And uh, we also are having a violent culture-wide backlash to that. We're having a huge backlash to the idea of like talking about this at all to the degree that like people are like Taylor Swift is a deep state. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're I think you're speaking to something that's very true, which is um our capacity to lie to ourselves yeah um our you know our capacity to turn a blind eye to things um you know life is hard and people just want to not have to face the evils that are quite frankly on its face all around us um and yeah i mean this movie is definitely wrestling with those with those demons for sure yeah and like I do, you know, I do appreciate why people can't fuck with this movie. I do appreciate why there are people who are like, this is a good movie. I just can't, I can't deal. You know, yeah. I, 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 there are a lot of people who are like, I get why people think this is a masterpiece, uh, but uh, it's not my Lynch, you know, even big Lynch fans. Um, I actually want to talk about a, a critic who got this movie right at the time. I think his name's Steve Erickson. And he's a queer writer. Uh, he's he's written for my publication before. He's a wonderful critic. He was, I think, writing for the LA Weekly at the time. And he was like, y'all okay. don't understand this. This movie was initially reclaimed by queer people. And I think that is because there's a very high incidence of uh, child abuse and child sexual abuse within the queer community. Because it is a method by which parents who don't want their kids to be queer will control their children by they're just smacking them around, oh, you know, or whatever. And so I think the queer community came around on this film very quickly. Laura Palmer is a huge icon to a lot of queer women, especially a lot of trans women, uh, because she is this figure who uh, suffers and dies. And like, uh, we have so many sisters who that is their truth. They were unable to uh, live. They uh, died in the hands of parents who defined them as people other than who they were. And like, sometimes they turn to addiction or whatever. Uh, Laura Palmer is 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 a seminal figure and this movie forces you to observe her suffering and forces you to observe her as a kind of american girl next door icon and also be like but what does that mean like so many girls next door are getting hurt and abused and are suffering and this movie's like what do you think about that and a lot of people are like i wanted more scenes in the diner where they like talked about pie you know i i agree with you Obviously, 100%. And I think it's so... This movie, um, 
for all intents and purposes, is I think like the Laura Palmer document, right? Yes. Like it is, it is really attempting to um, deconstruct all of the notions that people have about this character, and you know, I, I the the sort of the the famous prom picture of her, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, that is so kind of like look at how beautiful and perfect and all american this blonde hair blue eyed you know prom queen what have you um and how that is shattered into a million pieces yeah. uh by the by these horrible traumas that happened to her you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of scenes in this movie i mean first of all cheryl lee jesus christ is unbelievable in yeah. this movie i cannot believe Just people a- thought she was bad in this movie she's unreal in this film yeah um and and the different sort of it's almost a kaleidoscope the different versions of laura and how she's perceived by the different people um but with the the, the one scene there's a lot of scenes but the scene that she has with um with james in the woods where she's, you know the, the laura you loved is gone you know all th- this notion of of her not even knowing who she is anymore and yeah. what, how she functions in this world. Um, all that stuff, I think is just so beautifully rendered. I mean, yeah. so sad, heartbreaking. Yeah. But yeah. It's, um, you know, uh, I think that a thing about uh, how Lynch portrays uh, trauma is he sort of gets intuitively. And I think David mm-hmm. Lynch is, is a feminist filmmaker in his way. I'm not going to sure. sit there and call him like one of the great, like, I don't, I don't know that he sits, sits down and thinks about these things through a feminist lens. I think he just sits down and yeah. like, you know, sits in a meditation and is like, what if there was a little boy with a mask that had a big nose and he hopped around and he's like, great, going to, got to put that <laughs> down in my dream journal. Um, uh, but his movies endlessly circle this character of the American archetype, the the blonde the beautiful blonde who lives next door, the homecoming queen uh, in Mulholland Drive. It's the girl who moves to Hollywood and tries to break in. She's always blonde. She's always beautiful. She's always white. She's always thin. And in every one of these films, he's like, she is suffering. She is being hurt by society. And you don't want to see that because you want to see this beautiful surface. Um, You know, and uh, I, I think that he's, I think the way he depicts how these experiences shatter someone uh, and make them into different versions of themselves. You know, effectively, the Laura who goes out and is a prostitute is, a, 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 I'm sorry, a sex worker, uh, is a different Laura from the Laura everybody sees, but that Laura is a different Laura from, you know, the, the James and Bobby thing is, is also that. She's a different Laura with both of those people. She's a different Laura with her parents. I think one a of the Laura other... with Donna. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the other things that this movie captures that is kind of beautiful is and also harrowing is the way that living in a house with this level of abuse going on hurts the other people in the house. You see that with, yeah. with Laura's mom who is just oh, like yeah. so aware that something is wrong and something is broken and something is diseased and like knows what she knows, but also doesn't actively doesn't want to know it. And as such like looks away from it. Yeah, it's great. One of the most upsetting scenes for me this time around um was the scene around the dining room table mm. when he's telling her to wash her hands yes yes um the 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 sort of this this subtext this 
horrible feeling, this acknowledgement, at least it seems that way on, um, I believe Sarah is the mother's name, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Sarah Palmer, yeah. Um, knowing that he's abusing her, knowing that something horrible and evil is going on between these two people, um, the look on Cheryl Lee's face when he pinches her cheek is just pure terror and and disgust. And I mean, that scene to me is, I don't want to say more powerful, but that to me speaks volumes in comparison to, you know, the scene when he actually physically, when we see, you know, him as Bob actually abusing her. Right. It Because that scene to me is sort of everything you're talking about turning a blind eye to all the awfulness that's going on in your home um that that tension that exists that rotten family nuclear sort of core uh, it's just awful it just yeah this is the thing that i um child abuse um comes up a lot in my work um uh, i have this very like warm friendly novel coming out in 2025 right. where uh you know characters are like abuse survivors and like, but it is not, you know, it's not a thing the movie, dwell, the, the book dwells on. It's um, uh, often very buried in the subtext. I'm working through notes on it with my editor right now. And we're sort of having this question of how much do you make clear this is what's happening? Because a lot of the time, what I think, uh, what I love about Twin Peaks Firewalk with me is it depicts the way that when you are living in an abusive home, The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Abusive dynamics get normalized for you mm-hmm. because you grow, when you, whoever your parents are, this is, I think, the big lie that, that, that film and TV tells about child abuse of any form when you who when you know like your parents who you grow up with you think that's normal you think that's how the world is mm-hmm. and we can tell kids as much as possible um to use an obvious example spanking i think spanking is is child abuse and should not happen but you know you tell enough kids that spanking is what happens when you do something bad and that that is not abuse it's just you know it, giving them a lesson it's discipline they're going to punish that sure sure. yeah it's and what i think firewalk with me gets perfect is the moment when laura realizes this is not normal and that's when she decides she has to die you know yeah like and like i do i 
as as a storyteller, I'm like, how closely do you want to depict these things? Because depicting um, actions of uh, of abuse is viscerally upsetting. The audience doesn't want to see it. So how much do you bury in the subtext? How much do you put it in the background? And as I sort of wrestle with whatever novel two is going to be, it, you know, I'm dealing with that a lot. It's also in other stuff that Libby and I are writing for the screen. But it is like, how how do you want to deal with this? A lot of the time we deal with it in metaphor, which I think is great. A lot of the time we deal with it through genre, which I think is great. Um, as a storyteller, I don't think I would have the guts to write a scene like Bob coming in through Laura's window and Ugh. raping her, and then she sees her father and realizes what's happening. But I also appreciate that this movie goes there. This is a movie that says this is what's happening. It captures the fact that for Laura, it is a little bit alluring because that's all she knows. And then she realizes it's it's bad. She realizes that the way she was raised is not right. It's not normal. And like that's when she has to die. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think it's so interesting how even within the context of this series, it's there are so many people that that to your point want to um, turn a blind eye to the darkness that exists within it. Um, there are so many people that Twin Peaks for them is, uh, you know, Cooper talking to Diane on his dictaphone and eating pie and talking how good how good the coffee is and you know just just the the oddities and the quirkiness of the town yeah um and that this movie is a challenge to that and just saying no you can't look away from what this really is and, about and to be clear i think the reason twin peaks works is cooper i think cooper's one mm -hmm. of the great tv characters um, and you know, every time he's in this movie, it's he's yep. used as a like a little break. You're like, here's this guy. Kyle McLaughlin is an endlessly decent human being, it seems like he plays decency so well on screen, which is so hard to do. And he uh, you know, when it then this movie ends with him standing there with Laura as she looks up at her angel and is like weeping, it's like so emotional. And so much of it is because there is this one guy who cares, regardless of, you know, the fact that he then like travels through time to save her in the return. You're like, and that's yeah, probably, does. probably not what she needed. There is this one person who is like trying yeah. to keep this from happening. And ultimately within the context of the series, Leland has killed multiple people. It turns out we find out in Firewalk with me within the context of the series he catches Leland. He does the job, you know. He does. Uh, he does succeed at at his goal. Yeah. Um, he uh, it, it he is. A, he gets a message from a giant who's like, "It is happening again." He's like, "Fuck! I got to deal with this." <laughs> Do you think the FBI has like an esoteric crimes division that's just like a guy who's like, "I had a dream," and in the dream, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it's so interesting to me that like. I mean, I think we can safely say that 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 the Twin Peaks series uh -huh. is over, right? Like the return is the end. I would assume. I I Who just knows? I you know what? I'm never gonna. I it's not just because I'm a Twin Peaks fan. It is because I feel like David Lynch cannot leave that world. I feel like that world is such a distillation of what he thinks sure. about. I would not, you know, if he came out and said, I want to make another movie, I, I'm sure Showtime would fund it. Um, oh, for sure. Be, yeah. I don't doubt that he could. 
I just don't know that. I mean, listen, he, I hope that we just get more Lynch content. I hate that word, but like, I just hope that we get more stuff from him. So in whatever way that that manifests, you're unhappy with the weather report. Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. I listen, weather report's great. I just think it's interesting that in theory, if this is the end of the Twin Peaks series, that it literally ends with Laura Palmer screaming. um, And that that is, (laughs) that's where he chose to leave us. Yeah. I do think is is uh, is something considering the fact that, you know, Laura, he has such a love and affinity for this character. Right. So when she does reappear at the end of 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 the return, you are hoping for grace, you know, for her character. And you don't get that. Yeah. Um, Which I do think is interesting. I mean, I to sort of connect these two things very, very quickly. You do have a moment in Firewalk with me where Heather Graham is bloody and laying in Laura's bed and says, the good Dale is in the lodge and can't leave. Write that in your diary. Yes. And that was originally intended to set up the other films that were coming down the road, which does make me wonder whether or not this notion of not necessarily Dougie per se, but if this notion of Cooper through time was something that was going to be explored in these two films and that vestige was, was kind of brought back to life for the return. I'm just, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that was very much, I think that was very much the case. And sure. I think that what I find fascinating about Lynch is that a lot of the time he does play with time in an interesting yes. way. Mulholland drive is probably the foremost example of that, but it pops mm-hmm. up all the time. Um, the, the famous scene in, in lost highway where uh, the call, the phone call is, coming you know they're the the, i'm in uh, your home yeah yeah i'm in your home is like you know (laughs) as a similar vibe and like that is the thing that is uh, another thing about dreams is they don't feel bound by time in a way that is often menacing even like a good dream you'll be like wait how did i get here what's happening right now um it's uh and i think that that is a a thing that i imagine that that was where he was always going sort of with this it seems that way I, I I like what you're talking about too of of sort of time being malleable. Yeah. Um. You know, there's that great sequence early on in the film. Uh. Well, I guess probably about a half hour into the film, the David Bowie component of it, yeah. where Cooper goes on the security camera, goes to look at the security camera, goes back and forth, and that security camera becomes some sort of a portal in time to yeah. some degree mm-hmm. or another. Um. Which I think is awesome. Um. Wish there was more Bowie in this. He's great, but like he's, he's kind a, of there's just a fair bit of him in the missing pieces i'm sure i'm sure there was a lot of rumors that he had filmed some stuff for the return they did not pan out it seems he was too sick to do that um so they just made him a teapot but uh one of my favorite one of my favorite creative (laughs) decisions of all time (laughs) is you run into this a lot in television where an actor's unavailable and you need to recast or the actor is like a child who's aged or whatever and you need to recast and Lynch is like, Bowie's too sick or whatever it was. He couldn't come back. And Lynch is like, I've got to recast him. And people are like, well, who's got a David Bowie vibe? We could get Tilda Swinton. He's like, I got it. It's a teapot. Mark, what if it was a giant teapot? <laughs> I mean, The Return does some crazy shit. I mean, the, the sort of the infamous eighth episode 
which is what an the, art piece unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. One of the great television episodes. And the thing about the thing about people who say that that's a film, what the fuck ever. I don't care. I think honestly sure. saying uh, a thing that is filmed in a sequential order of some sort and placed on a screen, she, we sure. can count it as whatever. All films whatever. are television. All television is films. Uh, probably video games are too. I don't know. Um, but uh, the thing about uh, people who try to claim the return as a film, I think that they miss is the way in which it is deliberately episodic. It doesn't seem like it, but every episode does have a hidden like spine. Every yep, episode yep. ends in the same way. You got a performance at the 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 lounge, and we go out. Uh, the the is the Bang Bang Club. Yeah, or yeah. Gets and then of course, um, you know, there is episode eight, which is a departure episode, unlike any other. You know, it. it it is a show that is constructed around television grammar, whether you want it to be a film or not. It is chaptered. There is no question that it is chaptered. And, uh, you, you know, grapple with it how you will, critics of the world. Listen, but uh, yeah, you know. if, if you need it to be a film to, like, assuage the fact that sure. you like it, that's fine. You know what? <laughs> if you want to say that you Yellow Jackets is your favorite film of the year, that great. Cool. Sure. I I'm there. I'm only best screenwriter in town. Here's to cinema for naming Yellow Jackets <laughs> I, the best so film of the year. This movie is is sort of split into three chunks, if you will, to some degree. Um, it opens with this sort of Deer Meadow prologue component, which is about the um, uh, Teresa Banks body and murder. And I, uh, as I said, this is in my top 10 of all time. Every time I watch the Deer Meadow stuff, I'm like, why is this in the top, my top 10 of all time? Exactly. <laughs> I, to be clear, I like it, but it is also like so fucking weird and goofy. And it's yeah. like, some of that is Lynch taking the piss out of, uh, the people who were too serious about the show, the little scene where the woman's dancing and dancing. she's making faces. And she's then Chris the, Isaac the is like, she's got a sour face. Therefore, law enforcement is not going to be very <laughs> I kind, kind of to think us. It's great. It's, yeah, it's amazing. But it's also clearly like Lynch being like, y'all are taking this too seriously. <laughs> uh, it, I agree with you. It is the, the little dancing girl. Uh, at first, as it's transpiring, I was like, what are we doing here? And then later when he's in the car and he's breaking down all of her movements, I'm like, this is kind of amazing. I, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm into this. I looked up the actress who plays her because she looks so much like Joan Cusack. I always think it's Joan Cusack. And it's just like, it's like, this is kind of the one thing she did. And she's like, she hoped it would lead to larger work. But her agents decided, like, her agents were like, it was just too weird of a part. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if they were telling her that because they were not good agents who couldn't find her work because she's very well, that's, good that's at, in this. But like, I do think it is like kind of sad that like her, she gets her big break and it's this. <laughs> So the whole Chester Desmond thing mm -hmm. was an invention because Kyle McLaughlin didn't want to be in the movie that much. Yeah. Um, so this this was supposed to be Coop, which I think ultimately probably would have. I mean, ultimately, I think it would have helped, right? I think it, I think it just would have made it feel a little more in universe. Sure. Yeah. And so I think that's part of why it feels like a vestige. And I think like. You know, if you did have that first half hour and it was Cooper and it was uh, Gordon and Miguel mm -hmm. Ferrer, it's the characters, you know, from the FBI, you know, uh, yeah. one of the one of the missing pieces is Cooper, like working out in a doorway and he's talking to Diane inside the office. Uh, it, you know, if you'd had some of that stuff, I yeah. think people would have felt a little bit more grounded. But also, I kind of love the Chris Isaac Kiefer Sutherland stuff because it's so 
you know, it does sort of set up the idea that there is this larger world that Twin Peaks exists within. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I don't mean to suggest it doesn't work. I think it works. Um, But yeah, I think in terms of... It feels very prologue-y. It just feels kind of like just a, a, you know... In terms of the critical reception of the film, it very much feels like, uh, you know, when they got the the B-team Dukes on the Dukes of Insert. It, it's just, Coin I rants. know that there's a lot of that fans out there that, that push back on the Chris Isaac stuff because it actually kind of breaks their brains a little bit in terms of canon and what have you, but it is what it is. Who the fuck I, cares? I, I, canon's, I think it's, canon's yeah. dumb. Who cares? Canon's dumb. Um, so then we get to, to Laura Palmer. Um, the cut to the Twin Peaks sign with the theme fucking rules it gives you goosebumps Mm -hmm. it's just sort of like and i know that that's the goods like that moment is what the fans are like yeah like you know what i mean like play the hits and it's just amazing to me that that's kind of the only moment in the film that really gives you that juice yeah and it's like you know you do have cameos from a lot of the like other characters the log lady turns up you do get those little twin peaks moments but it is very much like, yeah, though those have largely been sidelined uh, in favor of this this Laura story. And, uh, you know, it, even the one character from the show who pops up a lot, Donna, is mm-hmm. not the Donna, you know, you so know, Donna, it's you a know. different actress. <laughs> yeah. Moira Kelly, who had a very, you know as we mentioned, big, Moira, big Moira 92. Kelly, Moira Kelly, great. What mm-hmm. if she had been a teapot, though? Just think about that for a second. I mean, it's a question that we all have to ask. Exactly. <laughs> I I mean, I actually do. I it, First of all, Lara Flynn Boyle is amazing on the show. I don't yeah. need to take anything away from her. Um, and, and it is disappointing to some degree that she's not in this. That being said, I think Moira Kelly is really good in this movie. Um, Moira Kelly, who had a big 92, as we mentioned, we're yep. going to cover the the cutting edge at some point as well. Uh, yeah. We talked about her in Chaplin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, where, of course, she was Oscar worthy in Chaplin, as we all know. <laughs> Everyone that, was. that film won 11 Oscars, right? Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. 12, 12. Actually. Oh, 12. Wow. Um, but uh, I, I do think that we're immediately in Laura's headspace. She's walking to school and there's this pall over her. You know what I mean? She, she, she already feels, and I don't mean to say already, but like she feels unmoored. She feels yeah. as though something has, something has gone awry. So we really don't ever get quote unquote happy Laura Palmer. We never yeah. see the perfect, pristine, kind of lovely version of Laura. We really just have photos of it. Yeah. It's a it's a it's an act, you know? It's it's an apparition, really. She, it, it's, uh, yeah. uh you know, um she grew up in a house where she had to pretend to be that person. And therefore she learned to pretend to be that person for for the entire world. It is I mean this this movie uh, is so smart about abusive dynamics, and uh, I think that that is also hard to look at. So, like, I, I, I know going in what this is. I am care very deeply about these kinds of stories being told. I don't want to look at it. I want to fucking research Desperate Housewives, you know? I mean, I get it. I get you it. Know that that, uh, I cannot <laughs> believe that that show did the Alfre Woodard plot in season two and did not think – this was going to like touch on like a whole bunch of like 
racist tropes and didn't bother like like actually thinking through uh what if what if she was keeping a black kid in chains in her basement was not like that was like nobody in the process of making that was like this seems like it might have some like elements that we should talk about so i gotta be honest i've never seen desperate housewives listen i have seen should i uh, watch desperate housewives i watched all of season one and liked it okay. uh and then i watched off and on through the years i i tapped out of season two which the one of the more disastrous season twos of all time i i think it has really? some i've heard it has some good stuff in it but the central mystery is again alfrey woodard is keeping one of her sons chained up in her basement and it's is a it, she's really to good. what end though why is she, uh, doing she that? thinks he's a murderer uh so but it turns out the other son was the murderer it's actually kind of a like there is the core of a good idea in there they just like they did it with a black family and did not think through the racial implications of what they were talking about and it's hugely problematic cool 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 um but yes phil you should watch all of desperate housewives tomorrow all right um i there is a, a moment uh where laura um gives her diary to her agoraphobic friend Harold Smith for safekeeping. Yes. Um and I I I texted this to you. There's a moment when they kiss uh-huh. and then she turns into sort of a demonic version uh-huh. of Laura Palmer. Uh-huh. Yeah. That like legit kind of scared me oh, sure. in the moment yeah. watching it this mm-hmm. time. Um Laura almost has a supernatural quality to her right yeah. like there, there is this sort of a lack of control over herself not understanding the different versions of herself so they like manifest in these weird ways when she's talking to people and this sort of demonic version of her really fucking upset me um, i would yeah. not be surprised if there's a really rich reading to be done of this film through the lens of uh dissociative identity disorder oh um, that's interesting and like sure. i haven't i haven't found it or seen it but i i think that yeah. would be an, if there's a critic out there who wants to take that on or a person who who uh yeah. has did uh but uh but yeah i think i think what is interesting about uh how lynch treats laura is that he treats her a bit like a catholic saint um she sure, is sure. seen through the prism of everybody else she kind of doesn't get to be a person anymore uh and that means that uh she is a bundle of contradictions because uh, she is whoever other people need her to be that's interesting yeah i mean there there's there's a performative quality to laura yeah with sort of every different person, which is sort of part of what you're talking about, this disassociate, this kind of like needing to give people what they need of her. Right, right. Um, mm-hmm. she she's very much a vessel in a very sad way. We to it, different people. Yeah, we think about DID in terms of the very dramatic portrayals of it on film and television. But what it is is, I mean, Phil, you have a different version of yourself with me than you have with your mom, than you have sure. with if you go into a meeting to sell a TV show. Those are three different fills. It sure. is just your brain it, when you're young experiences a trauma so acute that it that it breaks and the different right. people you are become effectively different people. And like that's, you know, I think one of the things I find fascinating about uh, mental conditions is they're just usually greatly exacerbated versions of things that we already do in our brain. And like DID is just that you right. have to be a different person in different situations. Okay, I'm going to make that literal. So like I think that Laura is right. a great depiction of that. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a lot of defense mechanisms, right? It's a lot of self-preservation. It's, yeah. I mean, and you're talking about the mental health component of it as well. It's, you know, it's it's suppression, it's putting things into boxes, and how do I just kind of get through the day, quote unquote, Yeah, I, I think is is fascinating. And, and what, what fits into this idea as well is there's a line that Laura has to Harold, she says, Bob is real. He's been having me since I was 12. Yeah. And yeah. that moment is sort of a realization of she's been compartmentalizing this abuse for, I mean, we're assuming she's what, 17 or 18, I think at this point yeah. or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, so for the better part of you know five or six years, she has been sort of uh, sublimating herself yeah. for her father. And yeah, that's, that, that's how yeah. trauma works is you uh, seal it away in a part of yourself you can't access. And then it starts to break through and uh, it's uh, often has is very deleterious to your own uh, well-being. Uh, and uh, that's the thing I think this this movie captures beautifully. But in that scene, yes, it is. It is uh, forcing you to think about that, like even before the actual depiction of the act itself, this movie is constantly being like, you have to actually grapple with what happened to this girl. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, it's you know, it's interesting because that line is almost a throwaway, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it is not, it's, it's not underlined. It's not, there isn't a big fucking lantern on it. Um, and I, I think that there's the power in that alone, right? Yeah. The fact that like, they don't make it a big deal. Um, but then there's just sort of that notion to your point of like, I think that a lot of audience members want to sort of think of that scene when he rapes her, as a quote unquote one off, right? right? As though it's like this this horrible moment when Bob takes his his takes over his body and does this thing. Yeah. Um but to know that it's been happening for years and years and years is again, obviously it's even more awful, but it it becomes it's part of her DNA now, right? Yeah. Like this is just part of who Laura is. And you know, um one of the things I find fascinating about the return is that uh Dale Cooper finds her. She's working in a restaurant as a waitress uh, in Texas, I believe. She has a different name and he forces her to go back. You know, like so many people who are uh, abuse survivors uh, make a break with their old life. They go, they take on a new identity or, um, you know, uh, often a, a classic one is to get married and change your last name to your spouse's last name. And then you like live, you know, you bounce around the country, you try and find new places. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that does feel like a, a depiction of that, like that is a healthy way to survive this kind of thing. And, uh, this movie is uh, very much about all of the ways in which often these things are not survived. Um, that's what I find beautiful it, about the return. It gives Laura a life, but also like, absolutely. uh, it takes kind of takes away from her. I don't know. I, you know, one of my favorite parts of the return, um, is just is is cooper driving laura back to her childhood yes. home and we're just sitting in that car with them yeah and just enjoying that space to some degree but also just stewing in the journey and yeah. in the uh, it, it's yeah good shit uh i i think that um the bob stuff in this uh very upsetting yeah. hate when the camera goes inside his mouth 
um, hate all these things. No, uh, Phil, you just, have to look at the mouth. You have these are things we have to stare at. The mouth. There's so many mouths in this. There's a moment when I think it's the man from another uh, place eating corn in an extreme close-up. And I'm just like, I don't like this. One of the things I think that uh, Lynch is just such an intuitive filmmaker. And one of the things I think he understands better than any other filmmaker ever is that creamed corn is so creepy. Like it's so fucking gross. It's so gross. Yeah, I mean, leave it to Lynch to somehow find a way to make a man in a convertible screaming at Leland and Laura about corn somehow terrifying oh, and yeah. also funny. <laughs> ah, corn! Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, for a second, let's talk about Ray Wise, who uh, is so good uh, as Le- as Leland. Mm. Um, you know, uh, just a tour de force performance of possession to some degree, like being possessed by evil, um, and, 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 but also knowing what he's done with this possession. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that, uh, you will often find from people who, I don't want to say want to excuse Leland, because I don't think they're saying that, but I think that one of the things they're saying is that he was helpless because of Bob, basically. That this is a, you know, there's a tragedy. He's a victim as well. There's a tragedy there in terms of he, uh, you know, was unable to fight against the forces of evil. And I think one of the things I don't always, I wrestle with in Twin Peaks, I don't want to say I don't like it because I think it's interesting, is that is a valid, that is a valid reading of what happens. That is a valid, like, reading of the text. But I think what Firewalk with Me makes clear is regardless of if Leland is Leland or Leland is Bob, it still happened to Laura. And it still was him doing it to Laura and his body and his actions. And, you know, he is responsible for that in some capacity. What I think is, again, what I think the Bob thing sort of underscores is is twofold. One of which is is Laura not wanting to see who her rapist is. Like not because it's too shattering to her sense of security and self. And the second of which is a lot of the time um, abusers, um, the the famous fucking thing is uh, a a kid, uh, a parent spanks their kid and is like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. A lot of the time abusers situate themselves in a persona that is not actually themselves. And it's like, this is the person I have to be to like make this happen and uh, can feel like, you know what they did is not is not actually them and therefore they are not the ones hurting their children and of course within twin peaks there is this whole other world in which these elemental forces are at play and uh, bob is an exemplar of evil who was evidently born in a nuclear explosion which is fun but uh yeah. you know yeah. uh it, it, yeah, oppenheimer thing, it's all it's all his fault it's oppenheimer the thing about uh <laughs> laura palmer oppenheimer's fault Let's just let's just face that. Let's face facts. Uh, but I, I think that what it's so smart about is that like this movie is like regardless of if you think Leland did this or Bob did this, it doesn't fucking matter. You know, sure. whoever that is needs to be uh, held accountable for his crimes. Uh, Absolutely, so. I, I think that you know. Yeah, I, I and I, I don't think that this film is trying to give Leland an uh, an excuse. Or, it's not. Or I, a, I, to yeah. be clear, I think that uh, 
I think that uh, if you talk to Lynch or Mark Frost, they would never give Leland an out. I do think that there are elements of the fan base who definitely are like, Leland is also a victim here. Um, yeah. And there, I mean, there, there are elements to, uh, there is a kind of secondary trauma that is suffered by the person perpetuating the trauma. And like, you know, that is the thing worth talking about, but probably they should talk about it with their therapist while they're like, you know, uh, doing restitution, you know? Sure. Um, I want to talk for uh, Michael Anderson, who plays uh, the man from another place, um, you know, iconic uh, doing his his backwards speak. Yeah. Um, he's tremendous uh, and, and a really great actor just in general. I really liked him on Carnival. What do you, do you have Carnival thoughts? I Did do. You like Carnival? I wrote, I wrote, uh, I wrote recaps of both seasons of Carnival for the AV club. Uh, it was a show. There's a thing that happens where a show that I sometimes just like to watch for the vibes and the atmosphere. I decide to recap and I realize I don't actually like have that much to say yeah. and that was kind of all yeah. for me but i did like get to talk to uh daniel uh, daniel Knopf, the creator oh, before cool. he before he dove off the deep end into wherever yeah. he is now yeah. um, and get to a hear, teapot somewhere yeah yeah it gets to hear his his <laughs> plans for like where the show is going to go i do like mike i do love michael anderson and that i kind of i kind of love that show that is that is a version of of lynchian that i think um yeah, that is a version of Lynchian that I think people uh, think of when, you know, think of Lynch. That's one of sure. the better. No, I agree. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember when that show premiered, um, the, the aforementioned Jan, uh, who exposed me to Twin Peaks back in the day, when this was, when Carnival was premiering, right? And there was trailers and like the whole vibe of it had a very kind of, forgive me, but a, a Lynchian kind of vibe yeah. to it, right? Um and I remember watching it, and I think a lot of people did, watched it with that kind of hope that this was going to be scratch that itch. And I think to some degree it did. Um, that to me is a show that didn't get a fair shake in a weird way. Like it, it happened at a weird time in HBO's yeah. arc. And it kind of, you know, it was it was packed there with like the Romes and the Deadwoods and the what have you, where like people were like, enough with all this period baroque shit like i just yeah. you know give me whatever and i think carnival was actually a, a legit good show and and could have done some really cool shit and didn't get a chance to I, do it i think it was a good show I, I don't think it was as good as rome or especially deadwood yeah. but yeah, sure, sure. you know i i did like it um i am fascinated by uh Knopf's plans for where it would have gone especially because like they sound prohibitively expensive which is probably uh -huh. part of why hbo he was like well they're going to travel around europe in season three and i think we should shoot it on location and you're like okay interesting well it, you know it's funny it also had kind of a stephen kingy vibe to it as well right like of this kind of the the good versus evil kind of this big yeah it's very the stand kind of yeah. mythical very stand kind of vibe it is also i mean it was airing concurrently with lost but lost was playing in the same territory and yep. i think um hbo wanted it to kind of be lost and hbo has yeah. that's the thing hbo has tried to do a few times and has never quite nailed is their own version of lost or twin peaks um yep. you know the leftovers is probably the closest they've come and i think they were disappointed they tried with westworld as well I think, too. yeah westworld oh yeah well <laughs> i like westworld but also come on um but yes you're absolutely right they definitely want that sort of and I think they kind of hit the, I mean, obviously Game of Thrones was an enormous success. And yeah. I think that that sort of hit the vein of like what they, I'm assuming, assume is like nerdy genre, quote unquote, whatever, and right? And I, I think do that. think that like what's interesting is 
this kind of Twin Peaksy Lost vibe. Mm-hmm. What you're kind of, kind of boils down into is, do you want the sense of esoteric, yeah, you know, esoteric like mystical things that can't entirely be explained, or do you want lore? And increasingly, it seems like people want lore. And I do think Game of Thrones, like, really, because there were, like, all these books you could read. You could go and yeah. read a wiki of Ice and Fire. And just, like, that would be, you have so much lore. There's not a ton of mysticism and mystery in Game of Thrones. That's fine. It's not what it's trying to do. But, yep. like, it very much is, like, Carnival was trying to do, kind of trying to do both. And I don't think it quite, yep. quite nailed the intersection. Because, like, again, it's a lot of interesting mysticism and stuff, but it's rooted in this, like, incredibly elaborate mythology that you can go read online if you want to. And it's rooted in tarot. And it's rooted in all this, like, real stuff. And it's just kind of... Good yeah. shit, though. It's good. Like, it's, it's, it's good. so rich. Like, yeah. It, it it's... Yeah. I think that that's, that's one of those shows that I kind of look at as a, a missed opportunity as a viewer. Do you know what I mean? Just like wishing that they got to kind of plumb all the stuff that they wanted to, because I really do think like the sandbox that was created, literally the dust bowl for carnival is just so rich and so cool. And, and I really think the show kind of gets there at times, but never fully engages. I'm also fascinated by like Knopf's plan was that like the end of the series was going to be the explosion of the first atomic bomb. And that was going to be like, take us out of this weird mystical age and into something. And like, that is kind of where the twin peaks mythos starts. So you could see them feeding into each other if you really wanted to. Um, But uh, it's super cool shit. I, I I genuinely, one of the reasons I'm not too upset. We didn't get more carnivals. I think the end of season two is kind of a perfect ending for that show. Like it's such a good you finale. I think I got to rewatch Carnival. This has convinced me that I should just rewatch the two seasons. Is I time. hope it's on fucking Max. It'd I don't think so... it is. I think you have to God buy the DVDs. Damn God damn it! I own them um, somewhere. So yeah, I, I have them somewhere too. Um, but to get back to 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 uh, to Fire Walk with me, um, at, at this point in the movie, we've got sort of there's this, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. What, what do you think this ring signifies? Um, I think that it's probably, uh, just like, uh, uh, a symbol of you're going to die. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that I one mean, of it the, certainly feels that way. One of the but... things that Twin Peaks is, is very indebted to is the, uh, Ben burgeoning genre of we're going to catch a serial killer. And it feels like the ring is like a symbol of, oh, Leland is a serial killer. And this ring is like one Fair of his, his, his totems. Um, it, it, she yeah. wakes up with this ring in her hand, um, there's this whole moment where in one of her dreams, someone screams like, don't take the ring. Don't put the ring on, which isn't I think that, sort of speaks Cooper? to you. Doesn't Cooper say that? It might be. Yeah, I think so. I just, I remember that like, to your point, the ring is sort of like, don't go towards the light. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. Like this is, this, this sort of, there's that component of it. Yeah. Um, then you've got this whole thing where Laura and Donna go to Canada. Oh, fucked <laughs> up place, Canada. All kinds of there fucked is, up shit happens. There, there is a moment that I laughed out loud at uh, where they walk into this sort of seedier part of this wood cabin where you've got all these like sort of almost burlesque kind of women, uh, you know, in various forms of undress. And then there's just a subtitle that says, Welcome to Canada. <laughs> I was like, this is, this is not Canada. But okay, yeah. sure. Welcome the just version of Canada is is probably a lot more exciting than the version that actually exists. But I mean, I feel like uh, you can find all kinds of shit in Canada, Phil. You weren't trying hard enough. I mean, that might be true. I'm sure that's true. Um, it, there is this moment that I'm curious about 
or, or again, this kind of back to sort of the performative quality of Laura Palmer to some degree, which is you mentioned she's a sex worker in Canada or in yeah. this portion of Canada. Um, and there's this different version of Laura there, right? Where she's very sort of sexually aggressive. Uh-huh. Um, you know, she, she forces Buck to go down on her under the table. Um, there, there's sort of this very in control of her sexuality, very in control of her body. Um, that I think is an interesting sort of flip to, yeah, you know, uh, what's going on in you know, Twin Peaks. I think it's fascinating that like Laura Palmer is someone that men want to sleep with so badly that they will pay for the privilege and then she'll dictate like, you right. know, what they right. do, which is like, you know, sure. good for yeah. her, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think, I think uh, there is this, there is this thing that I think this, this, this movie captures, which is, once you are kind of out of your abuser's clutches, you can, um, uh, you know, kind of let loose. Um, mm-hmm. You can kind of mm-hmm. like, you can get, become an, ad- a lot of, a lot of abuse survivors become addicts. A lot of, um, uh, you know, abuse survivors become very sexually, uh, I mean, obviously sex addicts exist, you know, they become very sexually sure. forward. They sure. become very sexually aggressive. Um, there's also people who just utterly shut down large portions of themselves. You know, there are a lot of uh, abuse victims who never have fulfilling sexual lives it's it's uh uh you know it is i i want to be clear uh, the, the official stance of podcasts like it is that child abuse is bad and probably shouldn't bad. happen yeah. very bad don't do it i i think also speaking to sort of what you were just talking about as well there's people that um sex is an escape right like it allows them to sort of literally get outside their bodies yeah um it also allows them to regain power over their body mm-hmm. as well because their power because because their body has been, you know. Um, so I, I think all of that is really interesting in terms of this version of Laura up in uh, up in Canada. Um, Canada Laura. Canada Laura. Uh, Canadian Laura. Um, I, I think that uh, the Donna stuff is interesting. Donna crosses sort of a threshold and starts to engage sexually, and, and Laura is horrified by this and doesn't want Donna to be sort of sucked into this darkness of this world as well. Um, so there's this protector kind of thing going on yeah. too with Laura, mm-hmm. which I think is really fascinating. Um, I mentioned that scene earlier um, with uh, James and Laura in the woods yeah. and sort of this fragmented version of Laura. What comes before that is this moment when her mother, Sarah, sees this white horse, this apparition of kind of a white horse in her bedroom. Yeah. Um, what did that mean to you? Cause I am still unsure as to what my takeaway from that, like, is it sort of this angelic kind of thing where she knows that Laura is about to die or something along those lines? I think so. I mean, horses are often symbolic of being able to like, pat, you know, obviously travel. Um, but a lot okay. of, the, one of my favorite, um, I, a lot of cultures have this idea of like a horse that can sort of carry you from between life and death. I think ultimately it's just kind of a, a cool symbol but it, it does seem like it's a primal uh idea of this is a way you can get from one one world to another and the fact that it is pure white is very uh i think very marked in terms of like how uh laura's uh going to be ha- uh, uh received after death yeah there's a lot of that sort of i mean there's obviously the the, the literal angel that she yeah. sees uh-huh. a couple times um and then the association you made, which is, I think, very apt, that, that Cooper is her angel in some way, too, yeah. of sort of, you know. Um, I, I, As I mentioned earlier, I love the scene with James and her. I love um, when 
Uh, he tries to drive away with her on his motorbike and she kind of jumps off the bike yeah. um, to run back into the woods. And the way she screams, I love you, James, is so fucking primal. And yeah. like, it, it, I think that he is probably her true love on yeah. some level. Like, I think the show speaks of James and her as though, like, that's the love that was lost. Yeah. 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 I think I think that's really true. And I think what's notable is um the rape scene occurs yeah. right before yes. all of this Correct. it's right it is it is uh you know she has finally realized what is happening and basically her options are run away or die and uh you know it, it is like once you have that realization you can't exist in that space anymore you need to get away and um yeah. that's uh that's very painful um and of course uh it doesn't go so great for for Laura, but we got Twin Peaks. No, it, doesn't, just, it doesn't go so great for Ronette either, quite honestly. Um, it, it's you know, there, there's a a visual. I don't want to say motif, but it does happen a couple times in the film. Um, flashlights, yeah, these sort of big, crazy, bright flashlights. You're talking about the car scene in the return. Also, the headlights there, very similar yes. effect. Uh, Lynch is fascinated with with just beams of light and darkness. Absolutely. There's there's a there's a scene earlier in the film where uh, Laura and Bobby uh, try to buy drugs from it turns it's a cop. It's a whole thing, whatever. But they have these giant flashlights that really just blow out everything around them. And then in this scene near the end where you've got there's this whole like fucking thing with Jacques and Laura's tied up in a cabin and Leland comes and takes her and Ronette to the train that the train car that we see in in the show um and as he's dragging them there you've got this flashlight beams on them as he's as as he's sort of tied them up and pushing them towards this train car that's so nightmarish and just horrific and and you've got laura and ronette with this red lipstick that's smeared all over their faces um and and their hair just looks like it's it's true nightmare shit everything that happens in that fucking train car is yeah awful yeah upsetting nightmare awful what i'm fascinated by in this movie is there's stuff in as as you mentioned you can watch this without having seen twin peaks and probably have a pretty good time sure good time is doing a lot of work in that sense (laughs) uh but like there is stuff in here like the run at pulaski stuff is very much like you can just imagine like Lynch, like and, and to be clear, David Lynch clearly like Twin Peaks is like a world that exists in his head and he just goes there when he needs to be happy. But uh, you could just imagine him. He's writing the script for this and someone's like, well, you got to tie up Renette Pulaski. And he's like, what? Shit. I forgot about that. It does feel like Twin Peaks is his dream palace. Yeah. It <laughs> oh. But I agree. It, it is interesting because like, you know, Lynch is is obviously notoriously a guy that is not adhering to any sort of rules or strictures or anything like that, right? He's like, this is the way it's going to fucking be. And yet there is, and we mentioned this, there is canon that exists to some degree that he is fused to, which is what I kind of feel like that quote that I alluded to at the beginning, where he's just like, I was, uh, you know, there's stuff I have to adhere. There's a box that I have to kind of stand in as much as he hates that. Yeah. No, you know, it is very much like he has, there's, you know, he also is sort of indebted to the secret diary of Laura Palmer, this like tie-in novel. Like he does, which I have, he does want to keep it consistent. And I I appreciate that about it. And it's also very funny. 
it is very funny to, i mean it, because like of all guys you can tell he's just like that fucking book that came yeah. out like you know whenever yeah it's 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 fantastic um and and basically you know uh laura is obviously murdered by leland in yeah. this horrific fashion he wraps her in plastic as we know um and he sort of puts her into the river um and then we sort of and then he passes into the red room leland does yeah and there's sort of this moment where Leland and Bob separate mm-hmm. to some degree um, because then the Leland that quote unquote, we know from series yeah. does not know he was possessed by Bob yeah, um, and doesn't know that he's done these things. Um, he so, has, yeah. he has also compartmentalized and locked them away exactly. and so exactly. on and so forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I do love that. Like this movie's like, people were like, I need answers from twin peaks. And Lynch was like, I kind of gave you all the answers. And they're like, I need answers. And so Lynch is like, what kind of answer? I can answer what Garmin Bozia means. That's what the people are calling out for. That's translated as pain and sorrow. That, but you uh, know what? He, you got that answer. I hope you're you got happy. It. I hope you're satisfied. It is so funny. I agree with you 100%, Emily, that like everyone demanded answers. Yeah. And he gave them answers, just not the answers they wanted. Yeah. Um, And forced them to really grapple with the darkness that exists within this show i do wonder you know you mentioned this earlier and i think it's worth just sort of expanding on for a second here the mark frost component of this uh-huh. because mark frost is a tv guy right like this is a yeah. guy who he made a lot of, of hill street blues i believe yeah mm-hmm. right yeah and i don't know if this was a marriage in the sense of abc being like why don't you do this with this guy who knows that, how to make a television case, show yeah, yeah. right so so this marriage is made and they actually, you know, for the most part, it seems worked quite well together for a while. Yeah. And then Mark Frost goes off and does his stuff. Lynch does it, does this. They get back together for the return, which is decidedly very like, I don't know how much Mark Frost is in that, but whatever. Um, I bring this up just to say, I wonder if this did have Mark Frost component in it, right? If Mark Frost was involved in this thing, do you think it becomes a little bit more palatable? Do you think that it becomes a little less challenging or do you think that i mean yeah i don't know you know i i think that uh mark frost is a tv guy he's you know and sometimes tv guys are not great at being movie guys um you know the two forms are very similar but also very dissimilar um but i do think that like he had a, a way of blunting lynch's lynchiness but also i wonder if he would have you know if he would have been less inclined to go as dark as this movie does. Um, And part of why it succeeds is because it goes that dark. I feel like, you know, bringing in Frost to do the sequel follow-ups would have been natural, but uh, yeah. And and honestly, I do from what everything I've heard, he was pretty involved in the return. So like, it does seem seem very involved. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It, it, and, and I mean, clearly they mended whatever uh, issues they might've had together. And, and Frost, you know, again, is, you know he's found his own way to beat the the twin peaks drum right like he's released some books and he's released some stuff and and he is obviously a, a spokesperson for the brand in a lot of ways too like, like i feel the bob as though gale he's kind the of the peaks. bob gale of the twin peaks universe which i think is interesting and and you know as we mentioned the return is an episodic television show you mm-hmm. know what i mean and and as as esoteric and bizarre as it might very well be you do have to wonder whether or not that chaptered episodic component of it is the mark frost component you know like 
Yeah, I think that Mark Frost is very good at structuring a television episode, and I think that that shows in all of the Twin Peaks he worked on, which is all on TV. And this is the one Twin Peaks thing he didn't work on. on. I mean, obviously, like Um, I think he and Lynch both left uh, midway through season two, so (laughs) don't hold that against him. And then Lynch comes back for the finale. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah, yeah. I believe that ABC was like, "Uh, "You need to get back here." Yeah, it's because like, the, you know, and just to for, for what it's worth, just for a quick second here, just looking at his filmography, um, it, Twin Peaks happens between Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart. Yeah. Um, you know, Wild at Heart, also a movie that was sort of polarizing. Um, Can really loved it. North America, not so much. Um you know, fire walk with me, obviously bumpy lost highway, but like, it, it is interesting how like he's at the peak of his powers, quote unquote, yeah. in the, throughout the nineties. Yeah, and yet he's song. making stuff that people don't like. Yeah. He's uh, I'm, I'm so fascinated by his, like most of his, this is the thing that happens with a lot of my favorite filmmakers. Their movies come out and people are like, I don't get this. And then like, 10 years later they're like of course i love that from the moment it was released like that happens to the wachowskis all the time like yes for sure you're already seeing it happen with matrix resurrections which people fucking hated and now people are like that movie's beautiful and uh i didn't give it a fair shake and uh you know eight nine years from now they're gonna be like of course i loved it all along and it flopped because people are philistines but not me i'm smart i mean it flopped because also covid uh i mean did, didn't did not help that film's release yeah um I, I think that you know but i listen we we did an episode on resurrections i love resurrections i think it rules mm-hmm. um i i don't i i'm waiting for uh for the bugs tv show it's where is movie, it it's a movie about how you can find love after love after 50 and that's like right yeah, yeah. that's and that bugs rules yeah you can find love after 50 if a uh, woman with blue hair uh, drags you through a portal to find a person you yeah. forgot. Yeah. Obviously. Um, so obviously this movie ends, as we mentioned, we're in the, we're in the red room with, uh, with Coop and, and Laura and um, she sees her angel floating above and she cries tears of joy. Um, there is this cry every time. It is beautiful. Like, what the fuck, Laurel? Uh, Laurel, uh, Cheryl Lee is doing. Like, her there, there is this ocean of emotion going on her face in terms of just this journey she's been through and this this sort of peace that she's being given after all of these horrible things that she's been through. Um, such a tragic life, Laura Palmer lived, um, and it does feel as though he's trying to give her some sort of peace at the end. Yeah, it's um. I mean, I like, uh, I've been talking around this all episode, but, you know, I am a, I'm a survivor of, of child mm-hmm. sexual abuse uh, and child abuse in general. Uh, it, you know, uh, this movie uh, captures that experience in a way that I find harrowing, but also comforting. Sure. As I mentioned, it feels like it's looking at the world as it is, as opposed to, uh, to me, obviously, the world is many things. It is many different experiences to all sure. of the people who live upon it. Um, and I think, you know, um, the use of the ceiling fan, the use of these elements of like, this is a signal, this is a symbol of a thing that's about to happen is like uh, menacing because it's so prosaic, but it's also just like how these things happen often. You are trapped in a space with someone you think you trust and um, they are not suddenly not trustworthy 
but what I think about a lot is um, I tend to write, um, if you've ever listened to Arden, the one thing that you can listen to that I have done, audience, the, you know, the, 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 the second season of that is, is written in the throes of me kind of going through trauma therapy to figure a lot of this out. And like the, the character in there that's kind of a self-insert for me d- does not make it. And I think a lot about how often, um, how many versions of myself did not make it to adulthood to where I am now. And like, I kind of have survivor's guilt, even though I'm like, not, you know, like technically, you know, the only one of me is still here talking to you. And I think that this movie captures beautifully, just like is a way to mourn all those versions of yourself that didn't make it. And you don't have to have been an abuse survivor to think that you have to have gone through anything hard in your life to be like, there are versions of me who didn't make it here. And it's okay to grieve them because it was being alive is fucking hard. And uh, I think uh, this movie taps into that in a way that I find immensely powerful. Um, one, of my, one of the best movies ever made. One of my favorite movies. I'm so glad I never have to watch it again. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of rating this film, I don't quite know how you follow that up with a rating, but I'll, I'll just I'll say for myself, you know, when I saw this film, uh, which was not in 92, probably in the mid 90s, late 90s, sure. um, certainly after I saw the series, uh, I, I, I'd be lying if I said I loved it. I, I didn't really like it. Uh, it, it didn't totally work for me. Yeah. Um, I, I gave it like a 65 probably back then. I think yeah. that it was sort of I I. I recognized what it was doing and it just it was not what i wanted at that moment i think like a lot of people um obviously rewatching it now with years of uh experience but also having seen the return and 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 just sort of seeing what the the series has sort of turned into um it made this film a lot more powerful um so i came into this in 87 i'm leaving it like a 90 i I think it's i think it's a, a great movie um and honestly, if nothing else, and there's so many great things about this film, but Cheryl Lee's performance alone, mm-hmm. you know, is is a towering achievement. And the fact that like she didn't have the career she should have had is just is is just just a tragedy. Yeah. But that's yeah. where I'm at. What about you, Emily? Uh queer phobia scale, I'm gonna give this like a one. <laughs> like sure, it, does, sure. it does kind of feel like some of the like bad characters are kind of a little bit queer coded, but it's just fucking Lynch. He just is yeah, that yeah. way. Um, I mean, I think this is a towering masterwork of the cinema. I'm gonna give it a hundred and one. Like Perfect. uh I, when I first saw it, I probably would have been like it has always hit me, but be mm. for very personal reasons, obviously, but I probably would have been like 91. I probably would have like been t- kind of turned off by the fucking uh, like stuff in deer hollow or whatever. Uh, but uh, I saw it, I, <laughs> I, I saw it in a theater. I saw it on the big screen of about a year ago. I forced myself to sit there and watch it. Oh, wow. And uh, it hit for me. And yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a towering masterpiece. It's in my top 10 films of all time. It's uh you know, uh, but my top 10 films of all time is just full of movies. I will never want to watch again. And then spirited away. And it's a wonderful life, which I watch all the time. So I do think this, you know, I, 103, I've never seen this film on the big screen. Um, I've seen a handful of Lynch's films on the big screen and, you know, not to state the obvious, but visually his films are unreal. They're, they're so visceral yeah. and, uh, to see them on a big screen and to see sort of the the photography of his films 
yeah is just uh, is is really is pretty spectacular um so next week uh you are not on next week's episode well i should get my take then but uh do you have a take on sleepwalkers no i don't <laughs> it sounds bad it's it's bad. It's not good. Uh, Mike Natale and and uh, uh, Tom Lorenzo have come on to talk with me about uh, Sleepwalkers, the only Stephen King adaptation script he's ever written, not based on any material of his own, just a purely original idea. Um, and it's uh, it's not great. I'm not going to be honest with you. It's okay. it's not a great movie, um, but uh, it is interesting in in sort of some of the executions of stuff but i'm curious since obviously you've not seen sleepwalkers emily do you have a favorite stephen king adaptation a I'm favorite stephen king movie <laughs> the shining. is it just shining yeah yeah okay. I, like i love i love carrie um okay. i love um i'm trying to think of like one that i think is like less obviously like a towering masterpiece or whatever yeah i mean people really like the mist that darabont the mist did is, the mist is very good um, I think um, if we're just talking like just meat and potatoes, Stephen King, I think, yeah. I think Cujo is pretty great. You like it? You like a killer dog? I like a big dog, I like a big boy. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is a big boy, and he does kill people. Oh, oh, I mean, oh, Doctor yeah. Sleep. I think it's probably Doctor Sleep. The director's cut. Uh, you just you love uh, Rebecca Ferguson in a in a in a pork uh, pie hat. I love Rebecca Ferguson in a hat. <laughs> I love you, McGregor. Uh, that movie is such a slow burn. Uh, but so good, uh, so clear. Mike Ferguson learned all the right lessons from television and returning to features. Uh, just uh, I sure, sure. adore it. Uh, but also Cujo. You mean Flanagan, boy. right? Yeah, you mean Mike Flanagan? Okay, Mike yeah. Ferguson. He's a Ferguson. So. Mike Flanagan. Uh, yeah. But uh, Cujo has has a big ball, big boy, big boy. You like to get he hugs. does. Yeah, yeah. Probably, and don't you're get getting Cujo a, a sequel short story about Cujo uh, later this year. Oh, so you've got yeah. that to look forward to. What, what's Cujo been up to? Let's find out. <laughs> what has he been up to all these years? That's the question that Stephen King is finally answering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that Stephen King is, as we talked about a little bit on our Memoirs of an Invisible Man episode when we talked with the Kingcast guys. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag, but uh, some of the greatest books and movies, and uh, some not, and Sleepwalkers yeah. is a not. You know, yeah. What do you do? Oh, Christine's good too. There we go. We did it. Christine is good. Although, what a premise. Yeah. What if a car was evil? What if a car was evil? <laughs> Why not? Oh, uh, Emily, I'm glad we did this. I'm this glad we did this moment. too. I'm glad that um, we. Uh, I'm. I'm glad that we solved podcasting. I feel like that's I think what we this did. did. I think. Yeah. I think it's solved. Um, it's all never right. Gonna well, be we'll we're going to, uh, I mean, what's the next one that we're recording is, uh, oh, we're recording Leap of Fate yes. with uh, Griffin Newman. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited that. for this episode. Yeah. I'm excited because I'm just excited for Emily's thoughts on Steve Martin as a traveling, um, what, like carnival barker kind I, of I religious. I saw it. I saw it. Oh, you've seen it. it. Okay. I, when it came out, like around when it came out, like when it was on video. I saw it and liked it. So we're going to find out. We're, but was this a movie you were allowed to watch with your parents? Um, I think that I like probably tricked them into letting me watch it. Like, because cool. it All had right. religious themes. Perfect. Religious right. themes. We'll talk later. All right. Bye, Emily. Bye.
Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.